let's uh, open our hearts for what the Lord has to speak through our pastor tonight. Amen. Well, good evening. It is a good evening. Because he is good. How many were blessed by our week of series on the love of God? Wasn't that amazing? I want to go back and listen to it all again and because it was just um, so rich. And sometimes when it's so rich, you miss more than you realize. And so I even encourage you to do the same, is to go back and listen to it again, share it with your friends, and really saturate in it. I felt like, I told Pastor Kurt, I said, I felt like I was just washed, you know. But see, that's what the Word does, is it washes you. And so as he brought the Word to us, um, such a powerful truth, and you can find it if you weren't here with us, you can find it online, it's on our website, it's free of charge, it's called Knowing and Believing the Love of God. So you can find it under the series list or recent messages, you have several ways to, uh, to find it there. And I just was impressed again and again this week of um, how this was such a timely word within the series that we've been looking at on the weekends. And we've been talking about the will of God to heal and how it's His will to heal everyone always, right? And so um, there were some things that, there's some questions that come up for people on the judgment of God and, and does God make people sick, some things like this. And there were certain parts of those questions that I couldn't get to until we first looked at what Brother Kurt brought to us. And it was so interesting because as soon as that series was done, I suddenly had the release now to go into some of these other things and questions that we have on healing that I didn't have the release to earlier. So that tells me that we are somewhere where we were not before the series started, right? We, we have, we've gained ground and so we've come up a level. For our gamers in the house, we've leveled up. So, so let's keep going. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 5. This has been our jumping off point for this series called Healing is the Will of God. And we've looked at a whole bunch of reasons on why we believe that. And we're going to continue in that tonight as well as kind of do answer one of those difficult questions or look into the Word for answers. Let's put it that way. So Luke chapter 5 and verse 12, we'll begin reading. While he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had a serious skin disease all over him. He saw Jesus, fell face down, and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, if the story would stop right here, I suppose we would all wonder, hmm, I wonder if the Lord was willing. Now, remember that Jesus is the exact expression of God's will in the earth. So let's see how Jesus answers this. He says, reaching out his hand, he touched him. So the untouchable, he touched him. He's contagious. Remember, leprosy was contagious. There was all these social distancing laws, and they were required to stay away, right? But he reaches out, he touches him, and he says, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the disease left him. So amazing that the Lord, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that He tells us so clearly what His will is. I am willing. When the question came up, if ever there was a time where, it was, well, you know now, 
The Lord works in mysterious ways. That's what he could have said to the guy. You know, it's all for your good, and the Lord works all things out for the good of those that love him. So, and by, is that a true statement? Yes, but the narrative is wrong, isn't it? The narrative is that, well, God gave this to you, and so he's working something out in you. And it's twisting a scripture that's not meant to be used in that way. So in spite of the devil's best efforts to destroy you, God is able to make that turn to the good. Right? So he's not the author of it. All right, let's look at... um, Actually, before I go further, let me just say this. You know, whether you need healing or not in your body right now, whether you have any symptoms in your body or not right now, you need this series. This has got to get onto the inside of you because eventually you're going to need it. If if you plan on living a long time in the earth, you're going to reach the point where you're going to have to have the revelation that it's God's will for you to walk in divine health. So reason number one that we looked at, I'm going to go very quickly through them, that why we believe that it's God's will to heal everyone always, is because God's Word is medicine. And we read that in Proverbs, how that if you take it, you meditate it, His Word is medicine. And so we, we know that saying, if we would say that healing is not for everyone, that's saying then His Word is not for everyone because His Word is medicine. Reason number two why we believe healing is always the will of God for everyone is because a strong spirit will sustain you. A strong spirit will sustain you. Proverbs 18.14 says this, a spirit, The spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness. Well, we know it's God's will for you to have a strong spirit, so therefore it's, a strong spirit would defeat sickness by itself, with the Lord's help, of course. Reason number three that we believe healing is the will of God is when we look at God's original creation and design. When He made Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, He didn't create sickness. Now, which day did he make sickness? He didn't. But they were in divine health. There was no sickness there. He called it very good. Right? No sickness present. So that was his original creation. That's how he wanted it to be. That was what his will is. Reason number four, that healing is always the will of God. is When we look at heaven and the new creation that is to come. In Revelations we read about it. How that this earth is going to pass away. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. And he says he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye. He's going to, death is going to be gone, removed. It won't exist anymore. Grief and crying and pain aren't going to exist. So that's the world that is to come. That's his will in heaven. That was his will in the beginning. So we very clearly see what is God's will. I mean, is there any sickness in heaven? No, there's not. So we know that his will is not for you to have sickness. Reason number five, that healing is always the will of God for everyone is because of the origin of sickness. Where does sickness come from? And Romans 5.12 tells us, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so there's how death came. Death came in through sin, through one man, through Adam. And sickness is just an immature form of death. Not a fully developed form of death yet. So sickness is encapsulated within death. I mean, if you get enough sickness in your body, you'll die, right? So um, we see that because sickness comes from sin, we know that sin is not the will of God for you, then neither can sickness be the will of God for you. So reason number six, that healing is always the will of God for everyone, is because sickness is a work of the devil. 
A work of the devil. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, in Job 2.7, it says that Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils. Who did it? Satan did it, not the Lord. If you look on into uh, Psalms 41, it talks about how he had an evil disease. Really, the direct translation would be a, a sickness of belial. Belial is, means everything bad and evil. Some of the translations say it this way, a spirit of infirmity was on him, uh, or a devilish disease is another translation that calls it. So we see here that the devil was behind it. Remember the woman who was crippled for 18 years? She had a spirit of infirmity on her, and then Jesus heals her. This is what Jesus said about her. He said that Satan has bound this woman. Satan did the binding, not the Lord. So if Satan did the binding, what was Jesus' opinion of it? Well, he said, shouldn't she be untied from this bondage? So the Father's will for her was to be loosed. And then again in Acts 10.38 is where it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with power and with the Holy Spirit. And He went about doing good and curing, healing all who were under the oppression of the devil. So, we see that the devil oppresses people still today in the new covenant. And healing is needed. So, reason number seven why we believe healing is the will of God is when we look at the eternal names of God. Remember, we went through 16 names. And we examined each name and what did it mean. And those names talk about the characteristics of God. They're attributes of God. They, they describe the Lord. Right, And when His name is Everlasting Lord, well, we know that He has been everlasting. He has no beginning. He has no end. He, he always will be. Right, So He is not the God of used to be, the God whose name used to describe Him, but His name still describes Him. Well, one of those 16 names that we looked at in particular is called Jehovah Rapha, which means the Lord that heals you. Or the Lord who mends you. Or the Lord who restores you. In fact, in Exodus 15.26 is where he said it. He said, I am the Lord who heals you. I am the self-existent one. That's what I am means. I am the Lord who heals you. Jehovah Rapha. And so, the interesting thing is, if he was the Lord who heals you, has he changed? No. Interesting that he didn't say, I am the Lord who makes you sick. I am the Lord who heals you. Reason number eight of why we believe that healing is the will of God is because of the covenant of healing. He made covenant with the children of Israel that He would be their healer. Again, in Exodus 23, this is what He says. He says, Worship the Lord your God and His blessings will be on your food and water. How many want His blessing on your food and your water? He says, I will take away sickness from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land, and I will give you a full lifespan. So that means you're going to have some help. It's covenant. He's covenanting with them. In Deuteronomy 7, he says this. He says, know that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps His gracious covenant loyalty. See, He's very, very loyal to His covenant. The covenant he's established with you, he hadn't forgotten it. He's loyal to his covenant. It says here for a thousand generations. Well, we've only lived 
Not even 25% of that going all the way back to Adam and Eve. So we still have a long ways to go before His covenant runs out. So if He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, we haven't reached the end of it yet. He goes on and He says here, So keep the command and statutes and ordinances that I'm giving you to follow today. In verse 12, if you listen to and are careful to keep these ordinances, the Lord your God will keep His covenant loyalty with you as He swore to your fathers. So His covenant of healing... Of course, it was dependent upon them keeping their side of the covenant as well, right? There was an if involved. So today, we realize, and we looked at this um, two weeks ago, was how that we have a better covenant today. And we had the old covenant, but now we have a new and better covenant. Let me ask you something. If you have an old vacuum and you buy a new vacuum, do you expect the new vacuum to at least suck up as much dirt as the old vacuum? Right? Else it's not a better vacuum. It wouldn't be a better covenant if it didn't do at least what the old covenant did. But it goes a lot further than the old covenant could go. So we have the old plus the new. We are under the new covenant. So, end of review, let's go further into our reasons of why we believe that healing is for every believer today. Is reason number nine. The reason that we believe healing is always the will of God for everyone is because of sickness is a curse. Sickness is a curse. In fact, it's part of the curse of the law. Everyone say, curse of the law. law. Let's go over to Galatians chapter 3. And we'll read in verse 10. And we're going to see... Verse 10, chapter 3, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law. Now, there was 613 laws. And we have multiple scriptures that tell us if you broke even one, you were guilty of breaking them all. Verse 11, Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. But the law that is not based on faith, but the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. If you kept the law, you would live. If you kept the law, the old covenant, if you kept the law, then he would keep his side of the covenant as well, and you would live. That's what it's saying. Verse 13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So we're going to come back to this particular scripture later because that leads us to reason number 10. And reason number 10, we're going to cover reason number 10 first and then we'll come back to reason number 9. Reason number 10 why we believe healing is always the will of God for everyone is because Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So let's, let's just look right here. Uh, let's just keep going here with verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You know, I remember when I first saw that. And someone said, well, do you know what the curse of the law was? And I'm like, well, no. Never thought of that, I guess. And so he took me and he shows me and I was just blown away. Like Christ redeemed me from that. I had a whole bunch of rights and privileges that I didn't know belonged to me. 
And suddenly that when that light came in, man, my life was different from that day forward. So Christ redeemed us from something, from the curse of the law. But did you know that many, many Christians in the world today believe that Christ has only redeemed us from hell? Hell and sin, and that's it. Yet, we know that it goes a lot further than that because we're going to look at it in a moment. We're going to see what does the Scripture say we've been redeemed from. So let's look at it again. Put, put, uh, you have it up on the board. Let's read it together. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. You know, Jesus... Um, so reason number 10 is because He took the curse for us. The curse of the law for us. And Jesus, remember, He's the exact expression and will of the Father in the earth today. This is what He said. He said, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Does that anywhere close describe sickness and death? Yeah, like radically so. He said, but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. So in full abundance and overflowing. So he, he states his purpose. So within the purpose of I've, I've come to give you life and, and like extreme life. <laughs> if, if in that description, would sickness fit anywhere in there? No, because it's not life. It's, it's actually going the other direction. It's death. And does life fit in stealing, killing, and destroying? No. no. So we very clearly see there are two sides. Let's go to James chapter 1. This is a point that people get confused on. And, and it's amazing because the Word is so clear. It's crystal clear on this subject. I mean, if you want to keep your doctrine straight, here's a simple, simple way to do it on this one issue. God is good and the devil is bad. And just use John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to do bad things, but Jesus came to do the good. Right? Life and more abundantly. Let's look um, in James chapter 1 and I'll just look up at verse 2 first. Consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Everyone say trials. trials. Has anyone ever experienced a trial in here? Yes. Okay, I'm preaching the right people. But endurance must do its complete work. So, quitting or endurance? Endurance, endurance lasting, going the whole way. It has to do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete. Lacking nothing. Now, if you lack wisdom, you'd a, you should ask God. You know, if you're facing a trial and you're not sure how to deal with it, ask the Lord. He's going to give to you liberally without finding fault like you should know that already, right? But He's, he's going to show you what to do, the steps you need to do. You need to ask Him in faith, believing that you receive it. Okay, let's go on down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures trials. Remember, we had been talking about trials. Because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that he has promised to those who love him. Now, this is a point of deception. So let's pay attention to it. No one undergoing a trial should say, 
I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And He Himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when or after. So every person is tempted after he is drawn away from and enticed. This drawn away and enticed is a hunting and fishing term. Okay? You're you're trying to draw lure something in, okay? So drawn away and enticed by what? By his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, it gives birth to death. So here we had talked about the origin of sin, I mean, the origin of sickness earlier, and it came because of sin. So here he mentions that again, just reinforcing that earlier point. But now check this out. He just got done saying, you know, he's talking about trials, he's given instructions how to deal with a trial, and then he's like, you know, nobody that's having a trial should say, oh, it's the Lord doing it to me. But we hear that all the time, don't we? The next thing that we see is he makes a statement and he makes it for good reason because this is a point of deception in people's lives. He says, don't be deceived, my dearly beloved. Don't be deceived on this point. He's just talking about trials and he's saying, look, when you're having the trial, here's how to handle it and don't say it's God that's giving it to you and... Don't be deceived about this because, verse 17, every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With Him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. In other words, in today's English we'd say there's not even the hint of a shadow of Him not being good, of Him turning away from that not being good. There's not even the smell of a shadow. Right? Of him not being the good God that, and this is a point of deception. He said, don't be deceived about this. He goes on and he says how good he is in verse 18. By his own choice, he gave us new birth by the word of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. We just heard about the love of God. Here's another scripture for it. By his own choice, he chose you and me. It wasn't because of something that we did, but because of his goodness, he chose us. Let's go back to Galatians 3, where we had been. Now, why did we talk about all of that in those trials? Because God is good and the devil is bad. And we're talking, we're looking at, let's back up to what was reason number 10? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And so, Christ is good. The curse is bad. Galatians 3.13 in the Amplified says this, Christ purchased our freedom. Christ purchased our freedom, redeeming us from the curse, doom of the law, and its condemnation by Himself becoming a curse for us. For it is written in the Scriptures, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree is crucified. In the NLT it says it this way, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When He was hung on the cross, He took upon Himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the Scriptures, Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. The Living Bible. But Christ has bought us. He has purchased us. He has redeemed us. He has rescued us. He has bought us out from under the doom of that impossible system by taking the curse for our wrongdoing upon Himself. 
For it is written in the Scripture, anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed as Jesus was hung upon a wooden cross. And then the Passion Translation. Check this out. Yet Christ paid the full price. The whole thing's been paid. The full bill. There's no outstanding bill. Christ paid the full price to set us free from the curse of the law. He absorbed it completely as He became a curse in our place. For it is written, everyone who is hung upon a tree is doubly cursed. Jesus, our Messiah, was cursed in our place. And in doing so, dissolved the curse from our lives so that all the blessings of Abraham can be poured out upon even non-Jewish believers. And now God gives us the promise of the wonderful Holy Spirit who lives within us when we believe in Him. Isn't that put so beautifully? So what was the purpose of redeeming us from the curse of the law? Verse 14 tells us, so that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. Would come to the Gentiles. You and I needed to be adopted and grafted in to become a Jew. And then now we're on the vine. Right? We're on the vine. In fact, because we've been redeemed about this, what does, what does Psalms 107 tell us? In verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We have something to say. You and I do. We have something that people need to hear. You need to hear yourself say it. Declare it. Proclaim it. The NLT says it this way, has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. <laughs> Speak out. Tell others He has redeemed you from your enemies. Again, the Passion Translation. Reading verses 1-3. through Let everyone give all their praise and thanks to the Lord. Here's why. He's better than anyone could ever imagine. Yes, He's always loving and kind and His faithful love never ends. So go ahead. Let everyone know it. Tell the world how He broke through and delivered you from the power of darkness and has gathered us together from all over the world. He has set us free to be His very own. He is good and there's no bad in Him, right? Someone say, I am redeemed. I am redeemed from the curse of the law. I am completely redeemed. I've been purchased. I've been bought. I've been ransomed. I've been rescued. Christ redeemed me. He took the curse for me. The curse has no right in my life. Hallelujah. So that's reason number 10 that we believe that healing is for everyone because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now let's go back to reason number 9 which was we believe healing is the will of God because sickness is a curse of the law. Curse of the law, which is what Christ redeemed us from. Let's go to Deuteronomy 28. I wanted to do that good part first. That way you don't get depressed and despondent over the next part. The good news first, right? So in Deuteronomy 28, in the first 14 verses, let's just look at verse 1. It says, now if, everyone say if, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God and are careful to follow all, someone say all, His commands I am giving you today, the Lord your God will put you far above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come and overtake you because 
Because, why? Because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then he goes down verses 3 through 14 describing the blessing and it's awesome. Okay? It talks about how they're the head, not the tail. They overcome. They're not beneath. They just, they rock, man. And so here, let's jump down to verse 15. So that was the blessing. Now let's look at the curse. We're talking about the curse of the law. 613 laws they had. And verse 15 in particular, we're going to take a close look at the sickness that's part of the curse of the law. So we'll pick out some verses. We're not going to read it all. But just so you know, poverty is part of the curse of the law. It's in there. All manners of destruction. Um, zero peace, no rest. That's all part of the curse of the law, which Christ redeemed us from. Let me ask you this. Did Christ redeem you from sin? Do you still sometimes sin? So Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, sickness, and sin. Do you still sometimes deal with sickness? Yeah. You, you have to use your faith for that, just like you do for sin. Alright? Verse 15. But if, there it is again, everyone say if. It's conditional. You do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all His commands and statutes I'm giving you today. All these curses will come and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and kneading bowl will be cursed. The, first, the fruit of your womb will be cursed. And your soil's produce and the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. You won't be able to get away from the curse. It's just there. Everywhere you go. Out in the field, in the city. Inside, outside. Everywhere it's just curse. Everything going wrong. Verse 20. <clears throat> the Lord will send against you curses confusion, that word confusion is trouble and vexation. Trouble and vexation. So, confusion. Actually, let's, um, I'm just going to back up first, because we're going to go down through and list all of these sicknesses and talk about them a little bit. In verse 18, it says the womb is cursed. <clears throat> the womb is cursed. So, children being born with deformities or maybe being born early and not living, that's all part of the curse. Being miscarried, that's part of the curse. Or maybe just not even being able to become, part, uh, become pregnant, that's all part of the curse of the law and you have been redeemed from it. Verse 20 says confusion, alright? Confusion. I'll just read the whole verse. The Lord will send against you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you do until you are destroyed and quickly perish because of the wickedness of your actions in abandoning me. Verse 21. So confusion is mental, right? So that's in your head. <clears throat> verse 21. The Lord will make pestilence cling to you until He has exterminated you from the land you are entering to possess. So pestilence. Who wants a nice dish of pestilence? No. no. I mean, the kind of sticky kind of pestilence. It sticks to you. It clings to you. Can't get rid of it. Verse 21, The Lord will make pestilence cling to you until you are exterminated from the land you're entering to possess. Verse 22, The Lord will inflict you with wasting disease. What's wasting disease? Well, some translations say tuberculosis. Others say infectious diseases. Wasting disease. He goes on and he says fever. Well, I think we know what a fever is. Anyone here ever had a fever? Right? Part of the curse. Inflammation. Wow, this is a big one. This one's deadly. 
because it spawns a lot of other diseases. Inflammation. Um, here's what some of the other translations say, or what comes with inflammation is swelling, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, arthritis, bowel diseases, asthma, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, and on and on. All part of infla- inflation, yeah. <laughs> inflammation. Let's go on and read uh, the next one. Extreme fever or burning heat. Extreme, intense burning. Then he lists drought, blight, and mildew. Wow, who wants mildew? You smell moldy. (laughs) Verse 27. This one's, in my translation here that I'm using, it says the boils of Egypt. The boils of Egypt. I like how the King James says it just because it sounds so bad. It says the botch of Egypt. Who, the botch, man. Who wants that? That's botch, you know. That botch of Egypt is ulcers and also inflammation and burning. The Lord will inflict you with the boils of Egypt with tumors. The word's also hemorrhoids. You know, hemorrhoids are part of the curse of the law. Tumors are part of the curse of the law. <clears throat> a festering rash. Some call it the scab. And not just a scab, but it's the scab. Or scurvy. That's a vitamin C deficiency. Scurvy. Skin diseases. Eczema. Festering sores. Part of the curse of the law. He goes on and he says, um, scabies and scabies. That's called the itch that cannot be cured. You've heard of the seven-year itch? Well, this one goes a lot longer. <laughs> the itch that cannot be cured. Who wants to sign up for that? Verse 28, The Lord will inflict you with madness, blindness, and mental confusion. With madness, with insanity, with a diseased mind, to lose your mind. Craziness. You need to watch about saying, yeah, no, the so-and-so is crazy, or I'm just crazy. We wouldn't say that any more than I'd say I'm just Alzheimer's. Right? I wouldn't say that. But I mean, you can have it if you want it. So madness, blindness, well, I think that's pretty clear, being blind, not seeing. Mental confusion, insanity, a diseased mind. Um, some translations say it this way, bewilderment of heart or mind, or astonishment of heart. One translation says, wasted with fear. Fear racked, okay? Verse 34. You will be driven mad by what you see. Wow. By what you see, you're going to go crazy. It's going to be so bad. You ever hear of PTSD? They see and experience things and then they have to deal with it. Well, that's all part of the curse of the law. There's deliverance for it. There's deliverance for it, just like all these other things. Verse 35, the Lord will inflict you on your knees and thighs with painful and incurable boils from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. Now this word painful, it also carries the word evil, the meaning of evil. Some translations say an evil botch. Or evil and incurable boils. Or sore botch. 
One translation calls it an evil ulcer. Evil ulcer. Skin diseases. Incurable. Like, there's no getting better from it. But we're redeemed from that. You need to just walk around and say that. You know, I'm redeemed from that. I'm redeemed from that. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, right? Let's look at verse 59. He will bring extraordinary plagues. Well, we're done with the ordinary plagues, so now they're extraordinary plagues. And they're like one-up this whole thing. That word means strokes, punishments, and incurable diseases. On you and your descendants, severe and lasting plagues. And they just don't quit. Great strokes is how one translation says it. And terrible and chronic sicknesses. Some translations say evil sicknesses. Or cruel sicknesses. Horrible epidemics is another translation. Horrible epidemics. Verse 60. So now you know why I read that we're redeemed part first. He will inflict you again with all the diseases. Whoa. All the diseases of Egypt that you dreaded. Well, they witnessed all those plagues happen out in Egypt when they were there. And apparently they must have been afraid of it. And now he's saying, man, all these things that you were afraid of, they're going to get you. Verse 61. The Lord will also inflict you with every sickness. Every sickness not mentioned in this book. Every plague not mentioned in this book. Does that leave any sickness that you can think of out? So all the ones that weren't even invented yet. It covers it. Every sickness not mentioned in this list that we just went over. And every plague that's not mentioned. So Corona... Plague, it's, it's, it's here, right here's where it is in verse 61. Every plague. So we're redeemed from it. Someone say, I'm redeemed from that. Look over in verse 65. You will find no peace. That affects your mental state, doesn't it? Among those nations, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. No rest. Constantly worn out and tired. Constantly troubled. The Lord will give you a trembling heart. That means fear-filled heart or anxious, shaking heart. Failing eyes. How many people have glasses or contacts? You're redeemed from that, right? And a despondent spirit. That means a sorrow of mind or being, grief of the soul, despairing spirit, and weariness of soul. Curse of the law. If you've, been, if you've experienced depression, curse of the law. That's what it is. Curse of the law. You've been redeemed from that. He goes on and he says, he goes, your life will hang in doubt before you. You will be in dread night and day, never certain of survival. But see, that's not how you and I have to live, is it? In uncertainty. Full of fear. Wondering when the next shoe's going to drop. That's quite a list, isn't it? So it covers every sickness and disease and plague that exists. And this is all part of the curse of the law. And Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Yeah. So we're, we're looking at reason number nine. 
which says the reason that we believe God heals everyone always, or it's His will to heal everyone always, because not everyone does get healed, but He wants everyone healed, is because sickness is a curse, and it's under the law, and we are no longer under the law. So now I have a question. We come to the question part. Does God make people sick? The Bible says He does. Let's go back. We're in 28 still, right? Look at verse 20. The Lord will send against you curses and confusion. Look at verse 21. The Lord will make pestilence cling to you. Verse 22. The Lord will inflict you. Who's saying He's doing it? The Lord will inflict you with wasting disease, fever, inflammation, burning heat, drought, blight, and mildew. These will pursue you until you perish. Thanks, Lord. Verse 27, the Lord will inflict you with the boils of Egypt. Who's doing this? Who does it say is doing it? The Lord. Tumors, a festering rash, scabies, right? Verse verse 28, the Lord will inflict you with madness, blindness, mental confusion. Verse 35, the Lord will inflict you on your knees and thighs and soles, the foot to the top of your head and all over the place. Verse 58, if you're not careful to obey all the words of this law, there it is, this is the curse of the law, remember, which are written in this scroll by fearing this glorious and awesome name, Yahweh your God, He, who will? He will. (laughs) Bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, severe and lasting plagues and terrible and chronic sicknesses. He will afflict you again with all the diseases of Egypt which you dreaded, and they will cling to you. The Lord will also inflict you with every sickness and plague not recorded in the book of the law until you are destroyed. Verse 65, he says it again. He says more of the same. The Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and a despondent spirit. You guys as excited about those verses as we were the others? (laughs) Micah 6.13, I'm just going to read a bunch of verses to you. You don't need to turn there because you won't have time. Micah 6.13 says, Therefore I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. 2 Samuel 12.15 then Nathan went home. Now this was right after David had committed the sin with Bathsheba. Uh, uh, not Bathsheba. Um, yeah, Uriah's wife. And um, so in, the prophet had confronted him. Now he goes home. Um, it says, Then Nathan went home. The Lord, the Lord struck the baby that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. 1 Samuel 25, 38. This was after Nabal had done wrong to David. And it says about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal dead. 2 Kings 15 verse 5. The Lord afflicted the king and he had a serious skin disease until the day of his death. He lived in a separate house while Jotham the king's son was over the household governing the people of the land. 2 Chronicles 13.20. Jeroboam no longer retained his power during Abijah's reign. Ultimately, the Lord struck him and he died. Acts 12.23. New Testament, New Covenant. At once, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God. And he became infected with worms and died. What a way to go. You might want the botch of Egypt over that one. <laughs> Acts 23.3 Then Paul said to him, <laughs> so Paul's on trial, and the guy standing beside him slaps him on the cheek. Now this will just wreck the whole uh, turn the other cheek non-resistance doctrine that I grew up with as a Mennonite. 
Now, understand, Jesus did not turn his other cheek when he was struck. So here, have, have at this one too. He asked him, why are you striking me? Now, he didn't pull out a sword, but a slap in their day was an insult. Is an insult, not an attempt on your life. Okay, so understand that. But Jesus says, why are you striking me? Well, here, Paul gets struck. Paul doesn't turn and say, hey, you missed the spot. Paul says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You're sitting there judging me according to the law and in violation of the law. Are you ordering me to be struck? That don't sound very turn the other cheekish, does it? Well, what happened next, those standing next to him said, that's like the high priest. Oh, he goes, I didn't know. Oops. Because he goes on and quotes word. He says, well, the word says we shouldn't speak evil of our leaders. You all need to remember that right now. <laughs> so did we just read Bible? Yes. Did it say that the Lord is the one who did these things? Let's go to Second Peter. Chapter 3. Verse 16, Peter is talking about the letters that Paul writes, and this is what he says. He speaks about these things in all his letters, in which there are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the Scriptures. He's talking about people that are twisting Scripture and teaching it wrong, not teaching it right. The Amplified reads this way, There are some things in those epistles of Paul that are difficult to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist and misconstrue to their own utter destruction. Just as they distort and misinterpret the rest of the Scriptures. So is it possible to misconstrue, misrepresent, and contort Scripture? Yeah, it is. Jesus, I mean, uh, Peter, Jesus, the devil... We'll get it right eventually. That went south fast, man. Started with Jesus, ended with the devil. When the devil was tempting Jesus, he used Scripture, right? He tempted Jesus with the Word of God. Well, the Word says this, so come on. Of course, Jesus didn't take the bait. He quoted Word back to him. See, 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us this. I'll just read it to you. Diligently study to show yourself approved unto God. That means you may have to dig. That means you may have to look past the first layer. You may have to look to the third and fourth verse. You know, when you find something in Scripture that you don't understand, read the verse that comes before it. Read the verse that comes after it. And that will usually clear up most things. Understand the context, right? Or maybe back up several verses and read it. Then, the other way is you're going to have to look at that Scripture verse that you're struggling with through the lens of other Scripture. It has to line up with other Word. Now, there are no, I said this the other week, there's no errors in the Bible. There's no mistakes in the Word of God. There are mistakes in translation. There are errors in translation, but there are no mistakes in the Word of God as He delivered it. So diligently study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing. Everyone say rightly dividing. Rightly dividing, dividing, it means cutting a straight line. 
rightly dividing the word of truth. So if there is a right way to divide the word, does that mean there could be a wrong way to divide it as well? There's a dividing that can take place that it can be just completely wrong. So here are rules. Just as a little side note, and we'll get back to where, where we were going. Rules for interpreting Scripture and establishing doctrine. You know, in the Word, in the Old Testament, in the law, they were not to accuse somebody unless there was... You could not be put to death at someone's accusation unless there was two or three witnesses. There needed to be two or three witnesses, but a single witness could not condemn anybody. So that was Old Testament law. That was put in. God gave them the law. He's the one who said, do it this way. All the way forward to the New Covenant. That was still spoken about. It says, don't receive an accusation against one of the elders of the church unless there's two or three witnesses. There's multiple places in the New Testament that talks about these two or three witnesses. Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 1, he said, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So if you're going to make a doctrine on something... You've got to have more than one Bible verse. You've got to have several witnesses in Scripture that are going to say that. If you are going to draw hard lines on one Bible verse, you'll get into trouble real fast because all of a sudden you'll run into other Scripture verses that are contradicting what my position is here. Now what? Did you know that Jesus operated on this principle of two or three witnesses? At one point He even said, don't believe me because I said it. Let's go to John chapter 5. Two or three witnesses. If Jesus had to live by this rule, shouldn't we also? In chapter 5 and verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. That's what Jesus said. So what he proceeds... Now he's one witness, right? Jesus is one witness. Now he's going to go give them a list of six witnesses that testify to him. So he points them out. He says in verse 32, there is another one who testifies me about me. He's talking about the Father. There is, so that's number two. There is another one who testifies about me. And I know that the testimony he gives about me is valid. You have sent messengers to John, John the Baptist, right? And he has testified to the truth. There's number three. Three witnesses. He says, I don't receive man's testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and for a time you were willing to enjoy his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works, miracles, that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works, these miracles I am doing testify about me. There's number four. Four witnesses. That the Father has sent me. Verse 37, the Father who sent me has Himself testified about me. That's back to number two that we already counted, so we're not going to count it again. You have not heard His voice at any time, and you haven't seen His form. You don't have His Word living in you because you don't believe the One He sent. You pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. Number five. Go on down to verse 46. He says, if you believed in Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Number six. So Jesus goes, you want to check my witness? I'll give you six of them. 
He didn't just stop with two or three, barely squeaked by, right? But he very well covered it. So the same way for you and I, when we're going to translate and understand Scripture, don't make a doctrine, don't draw hard and fast lines on one Bible verse. See, what does it say in other places about this? Does this contradict something else in the Word? And study it out and be approved and rightly divide it that way. You know, when, when you ask the question, does it fit with other Scripture? You know, for example, the Lord has redeemed us from sin, right? All right, He gave us His righteousness. He redeemed us from sin. So He did that on the cross. So would God ever put something on you that He redeemed you from, like sin? Would He put sin on you, even though He paid the price for sin so that He would deliver you from sin? He, he bought you out of sin, but I'm going to put it on you. That just doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Well, He also redeemed us from sickness, the curse of the law, all at the same place. By His stripes we are healed. You know, a lot of Christians, they have more faith in, in Paul's thorn and in Job's boils than they do in the stripes of Jesus. Because everyone knows about those, right? You know, that's always the question that comes up. Anytime you get into this discussion and it's new for someone, that's a legitimate question they have because why? They have heard the Word of God twisted on that subject. It has been wrongly divided and so they're going, well, what about that? And so in a, in a later sermon, we're going to look at Job, we're going to look at Paul and that thorn, what was it, and we're going to go through that and answer those questions. I already, on Paul's thorn in this series, um, two question cards that I got on the question about Paul's thorn. And so I was excited to see that because I'm like, yes, because that was one of the subjects that uh, we're going to talk about and answer in another sermon. Actually, I thought I might get to it today, but then when I was done preparing these notes, there was like 19 pages, and I'm like, yeah, I don't think we'll get there today. (laughs) So does God make people sick? Some say no. Some say yes. Okay, let me say it a different way. Does the Bible say God makes people sick? Yeah. But if I just leave that part out and say, does God make people sick? Now I get the mixed response, right? Let's go to Isaiah 66. Let's, I think we can answer this question with more clarity than what we are at right now. Isaiah 66 and verse 14. <clears throat> You will see, you will rejoice. Let's go back to verse 2. My hand made all things, and so they all came into being. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person. All of our ears should be just pricked up right now like a puppy dog listening to Elizabeth's violin, right? Our ears pointing. What, what, What brings his favor? I will look favorably on this kind of person. One who is humble submissive in spirit, and who trembles at my word. Wow. Okay, now let's jump. That's, that brings favor. Let's jump over to verse 14. You will see, you will rejoice, and you will flourish like grass. That's what happens when the favor of the Lord comes to you. Then the Lord's power will be revealed to His servants. But He will show His wrath against His enemies. So not everyone's getting the same thing here. Do you see that? There's those that have His favor, and then there's those that are His enemies. So who gets what? Friend or foe? Who gets what? 
You know, routinely, these scriptures that are scriptures that are supposed to be applied to rebellious people get applied to the saints of God. Again, that's called twisting the scripture. Let's go back to Galatians 3 and let's look at something where we're redeemed from all of that botch. Galatians 3, and I'm just going to start in verse 10. Now notice, he's going to talk cursing and blessing even here. Cursing and blessing. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So if you have not received Jesus as the Lord of your life, you're still under a curse to this day. Right? So all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life, then you're under this curse. Cursed is everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law. Verse 11. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith since instead the one who does these things will live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written. You know, if he didn't intend for that to mean sickness, then he shouldn't have written it that way. Said it that way. Right? By becoming a curse for us, because it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. So there's the curse. The purpose was, the reason he took it and absolved you of the curse, was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> and we could receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So there's cursing and blessing. Notice that not everyone's going to get the same thing. Let's go to Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. And it's going to start becoming more clear to you. Exodus chapter 12. And, you know, a lot of things get attributed to God that are unfair to Him and His character. And I have, uh, I showed you guys this two weeks ago, this book. It's called The Permissive Sense, Hints and Helps to Bible Interpretation that Vindicate God's Character of Love. Written by Troy J. Edwards. You can find these down in the bookstore. There's a handful of them down there. And the book does a really good job of taking places in Scripture where things have been translated incorrectly because of the differences in language. One of the things he addresses is the causative and permissive tenses of the original language versus what we have today. We don't have causative ver- I mean we don't have permissive verbs, we only have causative verbs, but in the Hebrew they can go both ways. Permissive, permitting something or committing something, right? And so there's a difference between permitting something and committing something. When you look at uh, I'll give you an example of things that he talks about, when you look at Pharaoh, right? Again and again in Scripture, it says that Pharaoh hardened, I mean, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to do all this stuff to him, and he's going to relent and repent and say he's going to let you go. But then you know what, Moses? I'm going to make his heart hard again, and he's going to say no. And so, just reading over the story, a lot of that is translated incorrectly. And if you look at the original, because in other places, they will, sometimes the translators will translate it right. And they'll put it down as permit, allow. And so when you think of a a great explanation of Pharaoh's hardening of the heart is, um, I saw this as sight and sound, and the sun, okay? The sun is a big ball of fire, right? So let's just say the sun is God for our illustration purpose. 
and you have some wax and you have some clay. Both are, both are sitting here in the same sun. It's the same sun to both substances. Yet they both react completely differently to the sun. It's not the sun's fault. It's what they're made of that is reacting to the heat of the sun. The wax gets soft and pliable. The clay gets hard as a brick. And so when God is dealing with Pharaoh, in response to God, Pharaoh's heart continually gets hardened. You could say, well, it's God's fault. Well, indirectly, yeah, because he is God and Pharaoh is the rebellious person he is, and he just hardens against him and resists him. And so some of these things are, um, so you'll find uh, those things in that book that I showed you, and um, I'm not going to preach the sermon on that, so there's a sermon I don't have to preach, you can just read the book. All right, so now we're in Exodus chapter 12, and he says this in verse 12. The Lord is speaking. He says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on the night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. So who's doing the smiting here? Who does it say is doing the smiting? The Lord. The Lord said, I'm going to do it. Verse 13, the blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Notice that not everyone's getting whacked in this story. There are those that are, and then there are those that had the blood. The blood applied. And the blood stopped the destroyer from coming in. Let's go to verse 23 now. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, He will pass over the door and not let, not permit, not allow, not suffer, some translations say, the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So earlier, God was saying, I'm going to do it. But now it's changed to, I'm not going to allow the destroyer to come in. We'll not let the destroyer in. See, permitting something and committing it is two different things, isn't it? God passes judgment here that allows the destroyer access. And there's only one thing that stops it, and that's the blood. Because the destroyer can do it. You know, I'll tell you a story. When I was young, we, I was raised on a poultry farm, and we had a huge chicken house, and we'd have like 12,900 chickens in this, in this chicken house. And we would get them as little baby chicks, like day old, like they were just hatched little peepers, right? And little fluffy yellow balls is what they were, and it was, it was amazing to see them, all 12,000 of them there in a chicken house. Well, we had um, a hedge of protection around these things. We had walls. We had a roof, they were enclosed so that all the varmints outside couldn't get in and hurt them, right? And we also had a bunch of cats. Now, for the purpose of this story, the cats are the destroyer, okay? <laughs> so you may like cats and that's okay, but cats really like baby chickens, all right? And it tastes like chicken to them. So what we would do is we'd go through the house, we'd pick up, any little baby chicks that had died and we'd just throw them out and that cats would eat them. So they really had a taste for, for these baby chicks. 
And one day I'm in there and I realize that the door has been left open and I turn around to see a cat in the hen house, in the chicky house, and um, is like trying to stalk and he'd already grabbed one and then was going after another, was stalking some more. And instantly I did something. I rebuked the devourer. He'd come in through the hedge that we'd put up around it, but here was the devourer in the chick house. And so now I'm, command, I'm yelling at the cat. I'm rebuking the devourer, right? The chickies weren't rebuking him. I was. Well, you read tonight about the tie that the Lord rebukes the devourer for us. That's what was happening there. And so, of course, because I'm yelling at the cat, the cat looks around, runs, sees the door, leaves. So I shut the door. That's key. You want to, you want to, after you get, get the devourer gone, you want to find the door and shut it. Yeah. All right? Because it'll just be back. Well, I used to like to play with these things. And um, I remember I took one of them and decided I was going to make it a pet. And um, I built little log, Lincoln log cabins. And like he had a house and the whole bit, you know. I brought him down into the basement, made this box, and had this little baby chicky. Now, I like to take him and play with him and hold him in my hand. But when I was outside and the cats were around, as long as he stays in my hand, he's safe. But the moment he becomes willful and jumps out of my hand, he is now within striking reach of the devourer. Now, maybe I was holding it. Maybe I loosened my hold. But is it, did I destroy the kitty? I mean, the, the, I might have later if it would have. <laughs> did I destroy the chicky? No. It destroyed itself. Now, that didn't, he didn't actually do that. I'm just, let's play the story out further. Chicky jumps out. Cat pounces on Chicky. Chicky's done. Or at least maimed, right? By its own choice. Now, Chicky can't understand that I'm saying stay in my hand like you can. But no man, no man can pluck you out of the Father's hand. But you can remove yourself from His hand. You can get off the straight and narrow and get off into the, the bushes and the brambles where there's a lion stalking around, roaring about, seeking whom he may devour. And guess what? The chickies he's not devouring are the ones that are up under the wing. I watched this um, video today, I think, of a hawk. This was a mama ch chicken and her little baby chicks were outside and a hawk comes in and wham! lands right down amongst them, grabs a little baby chick, and this, this mama hen was so fast, she attacked that hawk, whooped him, backed him up in a corner, and like the thing was just like, let everything alone. Little baby chicks had run off, and she was standing there, you know, after the fight, keeping it in the corner for several minutes. But see, that's right. <laughs> Don't mess with mama. But you see, that little chicky, he could have went off and told his friends that the Lord did that, or that my, my master did that to me, when he did it to himself. Let's go to Judges chapter 2. We still have a little ways to go, so I'm going to have to um, hurry. Okay. Did you find Judges yet? That's good, because I didn't. Alright, chapter 2, verse 14. The Lord's anger burned against Israel and He handed them over to Mar-raiders. Mar I don't know if I'm saying that right. 
marauders. Thank you. So he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them so they could no longer resist their enemies. So who is doing the destroying here? The Lord or the enemies? The enemies, yeah. And he goes on and he says in verse 15, when the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them just as He had promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. But in the previous verse, it very clearly shows who did the destroying. How did you say that? Marauders. 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 I'll get it in there eventually. So they're doing the destroying. Now listen, if being destroyed is the will of God, because see, judgment allows the destroyer access to you. I mean, listen, the only reason that the enemy hasn't wiped you out already is because he's not allowed to. Because he wants to. So the only reason you're still here is because he's not been permitted to. So here, if being destroyed is God's will for you, then the sin that brought the judgment that brings the destruction allows the enemy access would have to also be the will of God. The sin that brought the destruction. Let's go to Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah 9 and verse 26. And I'll read, I think, through verse 31. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who warned them to turn them back to you. They committed terrible blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. In their time of distress, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven. In your abundant compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the power of their enemies. Man, isn't he so nice? That his compassion, he he rescues them. Verse 28, but as soon as they had relief, they again did what was evil in your sight. So you abandoned them to the power of their enemies who dominated them. When they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and rescued them many times in your compassion. This wasn't just once or twice, but it happened again and again and again where the Lord would withdraw His hand of protection, the enemy would come swooping in, and then they would repent, and so then the Lord would restore them, and then they would do evil, so He would withdraw His hand of protection, and on and on and on. Verse 29, you warned them to turn back to your law, but they acted arrogantly and would not obey your commandments. They sinned against your ordinances by which a person will live if he does them. They stubbornly resisted, stiffening their necks and would not obey. You were patient with them for many years, but your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. See, God is not their problem. God is not your problem, right? We heard about that this past week. That God, or this week, I guess. God is not your problem. How many of you like electricity? I mean, if you're Amish, that's great. But I like electricity, right? It turns my lights on. It operates the heat in my house. It runs the vacuum, it runs the garbage disposal, it runs our microwave, it runs our refrigerator, we can keep things cold, and on and on and on. Electricity charges my car battery so that I can drive a car around. So electricity is really, really useful. But what happens if you take part A of electricity and part B of electricity and cross them? 
You have fireworks, don't you? If you take jumper cables and hook them up wrong, man, suddenly you have sparks and fire and you're jumping back and going, whoa. Does that mean electricity is bad? No, you just crossed it. And that happens with the Father as well. We cross Him and then we go away going, boy, He must be bad. He's the one who did it to me. No, you did it yourself. 1 John 5.18 tells us this, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. The wicked one does not touch him. See, judgment is not the will of God. Are you hearing me? Judgment is not the will of God. In fact, Lamentations 3.33 says this, For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. That's in the NIV. He does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. It's not his will that any should perish is what Scripture tells us. Do you know what? Love requires justice and judgment, does it not? I love all my children, right? I mean, they're very, very valuable and precious to me. Yet, if, if one of my children, let's say Adrian, went and was beating up on one of the others, now he's the biggest one, so he'd be capable of it, right? Now he doesn't have it in his heart, but if he did, and was just wailing them, I mean, just like being a big bully to them, being mean to them, love would require justice and judgment for me to stop in and protect the one that is being taken advantage of from the one that's not being so nice, right? So love requires this action. And so we can't look at God and say, well, a loving God wouldn't judge. Yes, He would. He has to. Or else He could not be a God of love. Would I be a, a loving father if I just said, okay, whatever. And didn't do anything to help the helpless? No, that wouldn't be love. So I would be required to step in, measure out some judgments and consequences. I'll read three scriptures to you from Ezekiel in different places. Ezekiel 18 verse 23 says this, Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord God. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? What brings him pleasure? When he turns from his wicked way and lives. Not gets judged. That doesn't bring him pleasure. It's not his will for them. He has a good plan for your life, not a plan for judgment. In verse 32, he says, For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So, repent and live. Chapter 33, verse 11, Tell them as I live, the declaration of the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn away from his way and live. Repent. Repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? He doesn't want them to die. He doesn't want destruction to come. He doesn't want judgment to come to them. He desires for them to walk in the divine favor and blessing that He's promised to them. Now, let's finish answering this question that we had started asking. Does God make people sick? Well, we read a whole bunch of verses that said He does. But then we read in Exodus where it talked about um, He won't let the destroyer in. We know there's plenty of Scriptures that talk about um, you know, the Lord's angels or the Lord's angel destroyed or the Lord's angel struck a whole army, all these types of Scriptures. So we have to ask the question then, who is the destroyer? Is it a fallen angel or is it an angel of God? Angel of light, I'll say it that way. Because both angels belong to God. By right of creation, He owns the devil. He created him. He didn't create him, the devil. He created him good. The devil fell. 
and rejected and walked away and took one-third of heaven's hosts with him. So there's a whole bunch of fallen angels that are like the devil, but he's their chief. And so when these things happen, who's doing it? 1 Corinthians 5, we'll start to get a little clearer picture of what, what does Paul say? Because in the New Testament, he, he brings some clarity to it. 1 Corinthians 5, now this is where this, this guy is living with his father's wife, and they're in the church, and people are inflated with pride because they're putting up with it, all these things. And so he's telling them, you all need to quit it and to throw them out. And in verse 4, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled along with my spirit and with the power of the Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, why did he not say, turn him over to God for the destruction of the flesh? Because God's not the one doing the destroying. Satan is. He says, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Here's the purpose. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Maybe he'll turn from his ways. We know in 2 Corinthians that he did. They did all this and he repented. But Satan's the one doing the destroying. Again, to say that the results of judgment is the will of God is to say that the sin that brought the judgment is the will of God. See, the wages of sin is death. And if death is the will of God, then the sin would also have to be the will of God. Say it a different way. To say that everything that you've ever done, I'm I'm sorry, to say that everything that has ever happened to you is the will of God is to say that everything you've ever done has been the will of God. Pretty certain that one's not true. 1 Corinthians 10. We're getting ready to close or at least considering it. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 5. But God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the desert. Now these things became examples for us so that we will not desire evil as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people fell dead. Let us not tempt Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. Nor should we complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Now, This story is in number 16 where this happens. And if you go read it in number 16, the Lord did it, the Lord did it, the Lord did it. But yet Paul translates it not that way. He says the destroyer. He makes the distinction between the Lord and the destroyer. He was talking about the Lord. It would have been real easy to say they were killed by the Lord. Then we would know, well, Paul thinks so. But apparently he did not. Do you think that Paul had a better understanding of their Hebrew language than what we do today? I'm betting he did. So, let's go on and keep reading. Now, these things happened to them as examples that were written as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has ever taken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But... With the temptation. He's not just going to keep you from being tempted. You're going to be tempted more than you're able. I'll just tell you that right now. When that day comes, there is a way out. A lot of people say, oh, God won't give you anything more than you can handle. Lie. 
First of all, God has asked me to do a lot of things that I can't do on my own. Secondly, the Lord's not the one bringing the temptation. Right? He's talking about the snakes and destroyers. And the word destroyer here means venomous serpent. Well, that sounds like the devil, doesn't it? And he's talking about snakes and destroyers and he immediately begins to talk about temptation. Well, that's odd. Or isn't it? But will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. Who is the tempter? The destroyer is. Hebrews 11.28. Remember, it's um, talking about the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood. It says he, Moses did this by faith so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. Remember I read that in 1 John 5.18? That the evil one cannot touch you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Resist the devil. Right? And he will flee from you. Some, some of us need to stand up and go, no, not today, Satan. You're not destroying me. Because I am His. And the Word says if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Right? He can't tell the difference between you and God because you're hum- you are humbled and submitted to the Father, standing in His authority. So it's God's authority that is coming against Him when you resist Him. There is a way out. That happens. You go, not today, devil. Revelations 9. And this, this really, um, I think, answers a lot of things in Revelations chapter 9. Verse 1. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star, so think angel, that had fallen from heaven to the earth. The key to the shaft of the abyss was given to him. He opened up the shaft of the abyss, and smoke came out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace, so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Then out of the smoke, locusts came to the earth, and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. Notice the difference again. There are those that are getting it and those that are not. Verse 5, they were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. Their torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The appearance of the locust was like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were something like gold crowns. Their faces were like men's faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses rushing into battle. And they had tails with stingers like scorpions, so that with their tails they had the power to harm people for five months. Sounds pretty bad, right? Bots of Egypt has paled in comparison, I think. They had as their king, now listen to this, they had as their king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Abaddon and Apollyon. Those are two names for the devil. Now listen to the definitions to this. In Hebrew, Abaddon is a Hebrew word. It means destruction, ruin, place of destruction. It is the name of the angel prince of the infernal regions, the minister of death and the author of havoc on the earth. 
Second, second name, Greek name Apollyon. Definition means destroyer, the angel of the bottomless pit, the destroyer. So have we identified who is the destroyer? He's an angel, yes. He has the rights to death. At this point, see the devil's nature is to destroy and ruin. He can't help himself. The moment he's able, he, that's just what he does. He destroys and ruins. John is a singer, right? What does John do? He sings. It's not uncommon to hear him whistling or singing a little tune. Right? He sings. He's a worshiper. Let's say it that way. So it, it's common to find him worshiping. Well, the devil's a destroyer. So what's it common to find him doing? Destroying. Destroying. Remember the little boy that they brought to Jesus because the disciples couldn't cast the devil out of him? And the father said it happens all the time. He throws himself down and the evil spirit tears him and wallows him in the dirt and like, like foams at the mouth and does all this horrible stuff to, destroying him. Remember the, uh, the, the devils that went into the pigs? What happened? Immediately they went to destruction. That's their nature. That's what they do. They are the destroyers. See, many people have attributed these actions of the devil to God by twisting and not properly understanding Scripture. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. We're going to close at 1 Corinthians 11. And let's look in verse 26. Now here's what I want you to get. Here's how you keep from being judged. The Lord gave us a gift in a way that we do not have to be. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, and then there's something else that's required of you and I. So let's look in verse 26. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So that's, that's our communion that we take regularly. Verse 27, Therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself. Everyone say, examine myself. It does not say examine his neighbor. Examine, not, not examine your spouse. Examine yourself. In this way. In what way? In the examined way. He should eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Eats and drinks judgment on himself. On himself. Little chicky jumping out of my hand. Putting judgment, bringing judgment on itself from the destroyer. Alright, what happens when that, that comes? So this is why many are sick and ill among you and have fallen asleep. And the reason he calls it asleep is because spiritually you're not dead. You're still alive. Just body sleep. Right? Body sleep. That's why he calls it asleep. And so he's saying if you don't recognize the body of Jesus, that you, you bring judgment on yourself. What does the body do? It's for our healing. Right? When you, when you think of the Passover, they put the blood on the doorpost. That was supposed to keep the destroyer out. What was the body? They had a lamb that they sacrificed and ate. Right? They were supposed to eat all of it. That lamb was for their strength. They were getting ready to go on a journey. Walk out into the desert. And so the blood was their protection. The body was their health. Their, their substance, their, their life, their strength. So we look at verse 32, uh, verse 31. If we would properly judge ourselves, 
we would not be judged. That's how you stay out of judgment. That's how you keep yourself in His hand where no one can pluck you out of. is by examining yourself between you and the Lord. Lord, is there any wicked way in me? If there is, show me because I want to turn from it. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. See, His will is not for us to be condemned with the world, but to walk in victory. So, again, reason number nine why we believe that healing is always the will of God for everyone is because sickness is part of the curse of the law. And reason number ten why we believe healing is for everyone is because Jesus Christ redeemed us from that curse of the law. So the worship team can come and let's thank the Lord for His goodness. Father, we're grateful that You are faithful to Your covenant. That You have covenant loyalty. Father, thank You that You bring about that which is impossible by our strength. That You bring those things that look impossible. And Father, I thank You Now Your Word prevails. And Father, we give Your Word free reign in this house. Free reign in us. Free reign in our communities and in our land. And Lord, we possess the, the land in the name of Jesus. And we call for every hidden thing in our government that needs to come out to be exposed. We call for truth to prevail. Father, I ask for You to remove those that need to be removed. Show forth Your hand that is mighty to save. We're asking as Your children, Father, that You stretch forth Your hand, that You perform signs and wonders, that miracles come forth, Father, that, that revival breaks forth in this land. Let this be a catalyst for revival, Father, that the church turn to You, that the church pursue You, that the church go after You with everything in word and in deed. And so be it in Jesus' name. I saw something that my good friend Rocky Veach put on Facebook today. And I don't know if I can quote it exactly, but I'll give you the gist of what he said. The sensible sheep are the, are, are the ones that are dumb enough, is how I think he said it, to keep their eyes on the shepherd while they're getting sheared. <laughs> and not be bothered by everything else going around them. So let's keep our eyes on our shepherd, the shepherd of our souls. And even though things in the natural look uncertain, we come from a place of certainty. Alright? So let's not waver in our faith. Let's not waver in our declaration. But let's continue to look for deliverance in this nation. Deliverance completely. And before we go, why don't we say this? Just repeat after me. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets me free from the law of sin and death. Amen. All right, everyone's invited downstairs.
everyone. Welcome to Church of the Word International. We're so glad that you're here tonight. Amen. Are you glad you're here tonight? Amen. Praise the Lord. It's great to see you. Such a beautiful family here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. In Proverbs 3, it says, trust in the Lord. Everybody, with all my heart, lean not to my own understanding, but in all his ways, let's acknowledge his ways. I said that wrong. Should I say it again? All right, let's all say it again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Well, we're living in days that we need to trust the Lord with all our heart. Not a part of it, but all of it. And I want to encourage you in Habakkuk, in uh, chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall the fruit be in the vines, and the labor of the olive tree shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, and the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there'll be no herd in the stalls. This is a pretty bad situation. But look what the next verse says. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy of the God of my salvation. Hallelujah. So we use our free will, no matter what the circumstances, God has not fallen off the throne. Amen. The Lord God is my strength. So you got to declare that. And he will make my feet like hinds feet. That means you're going to jump for joy. And he will make me walk upon my high places. Jesus is Lord. And he's alive and well in America. Don't ever lose heart in your Lord and Savior. Let's stand up together as a family here. And let's lift our voice in praise and worship to a very faithful God. Amen. 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 Well, this song, I liked, but I didn't quite like the word because it was like, we could change the world. Or, I like it better like, we will. We're a we will church, right? Yeah. Not, not a we could or we might, but we're a we will and we will do. Amen. <laughs> Glory to God. <laughs> You got lost again, didn't you? Oh, to get lost in Woo. worship. You can all we do is yield to the Lord and to the Spirit of God, and He takes you away in His heart. He erases all the distractions, erases all the disappointments of your life. He really can sweep you away. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Well, Father, we just thank you for this service tonight. We're so grateful grateful for the good word of God, grateful that we can assemble in peace. Thank you that, Father, your heart of provision and protection is around and about us. You look over your people. Jesus, you're the head, we're the body, and we are your concern. We're, you're looking over at us, always concerned about your body, us. And we thank you for that. Thank you for the good word of God. Thank you for the gifts of the Spirit flowing freely in this place. Because Holy Spirit, you are celebrated. You are honored. You are given place in our, not only our hearts, but in this assembly. Have your way. Have your way. 
We love you. We adore you. We thank you. We give you all the praise and all the glory. Hallelujah. Well, one way we love God is by loving one another. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm so glad you're here. Jesus is Lord. Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to be with you this evening. Welcome to Church of the Word International. If this is your very first time, can you raise your hand? We'd like to welcome you. Any visitors that are here for the first time? Okay, over here in the back there. Welcome. We trust the Lord has something for you tonight that you're not here by accident. So open your heart. Be ready to receive. All right, if you need a cash envelope for your giving, raise your hand. The ushers will see that you get one. And we are going to return our tithes to the Lord. I wanted to share one of my takeaways from the conference. Many of you were here at the conference, believing, Knowing and Believing the Love of God conference with Kurt Owen. And, you know, I was just so impressed with how much God wants to bless us. Yeah. He's looking to be kind to us. He's looking to bless us. And he just wants good for us. That's his heart. He's not withholding anything. And I know we've read, um, we read these verses often in Malachi chapter 3, but I wanted to read them again because we need to give him access. You know, he has set laws of increase, laws of, um, you know, he wants to bless us, but we have to work with him. We have to work with the laws he set up. And I wanted to read this again in Malachi chapter 3 verses 10. And 11 says, bring the full tithe into the house, that there be, may be food in my house. D bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby, or by this, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So normally we stop here, but I wanted to, I see two things here that we, ways we give him access. Because do you see this? He's saying, look, put me to the test. Like, see, I want to do this for you. I want to bless you. I want to protect you. I want to get this over to you. So, so here's what you need to do. You know, so we, the obvious one is tithing, but in verse 13, he says, your words have been hard against me. And he's going on starting to talk on something else. But now wait a minute. He said their words were hard against him. Well, what, what if their words weren't hard against him? What if we aligned our words with his, with his word, what he said, concerning our finances, concerning us? So I want you to think about that this week. Um, I know I'm looking at a house full of tithers. And so release your faith that these promises are true for you. But I want you to consider, are your words hard against him and what he said concerning your finances? I don't need to give examples. I think you could probably come up with plenty on your own of ways you, a person can curse their finances. Well, we don't want to do that. So um, we have to align with him. You know, another thing I saw in this, he says, test me in this. In other words, it's not automatic. It's not just going to fall on you. You know, when you test someone, you have to give them something from which they can give you a result. It's not just going to fall upon you. He's like, try me. Anyways, that is what I want you to see tonight. Let's work with him. Let's align with him. Let's give him an entry point so we have supernatural 
blessing and help and provision in our finances. Amen. All right, let's pray over the tithe. Father, we are so thankful to you tonight. We just present the tithe to you with grateful hearts. We just we thank you for loving us. We thank you that you're looking to be kind to us and looking to bless us. And we just thank you for your word, your promises. We thank you for the beauty in life, Lord. We know that all the good things in life come from you. And so I call these people blessed and provided for according to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. And the ushers can pass the baskets. And the people will give to the Lord. <clears throat> 